Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You may be seated. Bodies pressed in all around. You could hardly move or breathe. You could see the destination where you wanted to go over the heads of thousands of people, but it would take what seemed like hours just to shuffle that way. This was a busy time of year. In fact, the busiest. There was no more important day in the religious year than this upcoming Saturday. And the week was spent preparing. New pilgrims coming off of long journeys were arriving each and every day. Families who hadn't seen each other since last year were greeting one another. Celebrations were to be had. Meals were to be prepared. Dishes were to be cleaned. The smell of roasted meat wafted over the city, which almost made up for the odd mixture of smells with body sweat and live animals and packed earth. But still, everything reverberated with energy. You could feel it in the air. The people were getting ready for the Passover. The time when the Jewish people recall and thank God for passing over their houses in Egypt as he claimed the firstborn child from every house not marked with the Lamb's blood. This was the very act that delivered their people from slavery in Egypt and into the new life that God had set before them. And so sacrificial animals had to be sold and purchased. Religious ceremonies had to be performed. Prayers had to be offered. And there was only one rightful place to do all these things, the temple. And so thousands upon thousands of people entered those gates and walked across those courtyards, stopping at one of the necessary tables to exchange their money for the proper temple currency so that they could purchase their family's sacrifice. The din of people shouting and laughing and talking and yelling would ring in your ears long after you left this hectic scene. And yet, this was what was expected. This was the routine. One Monday afternoon, however, five days before the Passover, this routine was broken. Without warning, a man stormed through the crowds with a makeshift leather whip in his hand. He began to flip the tables of the money changer, sending thousands of coins into the people. And he would crack the whip behind the oxen and the sheep, and those two would scatter into the crowds. You could see there was a passionate spirit about this man, some intensity which drove him. The vast crowds began to separate, creating a space around This man who looked half crazy. Take these things away, he yelled. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
Later, it was his disciples who said of him that day, Zeal for your house has consumed me. A quote from the Psalms. And the word zeal gains its meaning from the color produced in the face by deep emotion. And it can also be translated as jealousy. There was another time that this word jealous was used. 1,500 years before this event took place, God spoke directly to his people. And he composed for them a love letter. And in this letter, he commands his children not to run after false gods who would only end up breaking their heart. Instead, they should keep him first in all they do. For he has an unlimited amount of love to give them. He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He is jealous for their love, for he is the one true God and worthy of all love. And his great jealousy will lead him to do the most amazing things on behalf of his people. And so by now, you probably realize that I'm describing our gospel lesson and our Old Testament lesson. Jesus cleansing the temple and God giving the Ten Commandments. And we find an interesting connection between these two readings. That God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, are both described as jealous. And so we ask, can God be jealous? We realize pretty quickly that jealousy for God means something different than how we think of it. Often, jealousy brings to mind the petty coveting of belongings. I want something that someone else has. Or we think of jealousy in terms of love, perhaps like a jealous spouse. And jealousy can lead people to do some pretty extreme things, not all of which are good. But we should be careful not to make God in our image, rather consider that his nature and his wisdom far exceed ours. His jealousy is not like our jealousy. And so we find that as he speaks the Ten Commandments, specifically the first, you shall have no other gods before me, he calls himself a jealous God. Not that God feels like he's in competition or that he's threatened by other so-called gods, but rather that God is motivated very intensely out of jealous love for his children. And he never wants to see them destroy themselves by chasing after false and empty and powerless things. And yet that's exactly what they do. And that's exactly what we do. Martin Luther, in explaining the first commandment, says that anything on which your heart relies and depends is really your God. And we, so we see that every human being, at times, sinfully turns to something other than God to feel secure. Some turn to their bank account or their retirement plan. Others turn to their belongings. 
Still others turn to perhaps another human being in which to feel secure, maybe even themselves. And we find that all too often, we're turning to the created things to put our trust in instead of the Creator. Earlier, I referred to the Ten Commandments as a love letter. And that's exactly what I believe they were intended to be. I borrow that concept from Pastor Ron Mel, who wrote the book, The Tender Commandments. And yet, that's not often how people think of the Ten Commandments, is it? Some hear all the you shalls and the you shall nots, and they think that God is acting as a divine killjoy, giving his laundry list of things that we aren't allowed to do. Others hear the sounds of chains and shackles when they hear the Ten Commandments, thinking that with each and every new commandment, God is seeking to drag them down into guilt and shame. And these reactions boil up from our sinful nature, which is naturally opposed and hostile to God. Our sinful selves react to the Word of God and naturally want to seek some distance from it. Of course, you can say, and correctly so, that one of the uses of God's law, like the Ten Commandments, is to act as a mirror. That it's to show us our harmful and destructive ways in which we engage. And it's to show us our sin and convict us of that sin before God. And this is true. But this doesn't make God's law bad. In fact, it makes it good. But God's law is good and remains good so that sinners can realize their need for a Savior. And so they can turn in repentance to God and run to His open and loving arms. The Ten Commandments were given out of love, not oppression. And we can see that by looking at the context in which God places them. Immediately before the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20 says this, And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, before God even begins... He begins by telling them who he is and what he has done for his beloved children. He focuses on the relationship which sets the tone then for all of the commandments. He is the God who has heard the cry coming out of Egypt. He is the God who reached his hand into history and did something about it. He is the God who brought them out of slavery, who continues to lead them, who loves them. He created them. He doesn't want to harm them. This is a God who wants His children to have life and have it to the fullest. And so, He begins by telling them His commandments, which is the way for them to have that life. My son, Miles, is beginning to like to do chores with Jenny and me. He's a good helper, in fact, and one of the things he likes to help us with is to accompany us to the mailbox. 
And so he likes to look in the mailbox, check if there's any mail, and of course, take it back to the house. Now we have a nice long walk down our front yard towards Tuscola Street. What would happen, do you think, if Miles were to run in front of me, out of my reach, and towards that busy road? Well, I would yell out pretty sternly, in fact, stop. And my command to my son isn't out of hate, but out of an intense love for him and a desire to protect him. But that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to go immediately running after him. God's jealous love for us embodied in the Ten Commandments isn't a set, isn't a selfish set of killjoy rules. Rather, it's a holy and pure word spoken out of fatherly concern and protection. And so we listen to him. But that's not all God does, because surely we test the limits of his law and we break his commandments constantly. And so, like the concerned father, he goes running after us. Which brings us back to our opening scene. Jesus cleansing the temple was God running after us. Jesus was full of his father's zeal, his father's jealous love. Now, Jesus' actions may have been construed as crazy or even hateful, but John makes it clear why he did what he did. The disciples recalled the fulfillment of the psalm which said, Zeal, jealousy for your house has consumed me. And Jesus was consumed by love. Not for a brick and mortar building, but for the genuine place where God meets his people. And so we know that Jesus the Son was sent by his Father to his lost children, to you, and to me. And he kept the law perfectly. He offers us healing and forgiveness. He restores our relationship with God by delivering us from our slavery to sin and into the new life that he has for us. And Jesus that day cleared up any misunderstanding his children had. It wasn't going to be about the animal sacrifices anymore. The one true sacrifice had arrived. And it wasn't going to be about the temple building either. He points to himself and he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. His body is the new temple and in three days, it would be, in five days, it would be hanging on the cross, destroyed. And in three days, he would raise it up again. And by offering himself for us, he has forgiven us every single time that we have taken God's undeserved and jealous love and cast it off as if it were worthless. And he has demonstrated just how far the Father and his love is willing to pursue us, to run after us, and to bring us back into his loving and waiting arms. In Jesus' name, amen.